0: Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Joseph Lowndes, associate professor of political science at the University of Oregon. Lowndes' interests include conservatism, the Tea Party, social movements, the GOP, race, and elections. He studies how political movements like the Tea Party come to be and the role of race and gender in politics. A regular commentator in journals like The Guardian, The Washington Post, and Newsweek, Lowndes is also the author of From the New Deal to the New Right, Race and the Southern Origins of Modern Conservatism, and co-editor of Race and American Political Development. Thanks, Joe, for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul.
0: So what led to your interest in conservative political movements? How did you wind up studying that phenomenon?
1: You know, I grew up uh, in the South in a fairly conservative household, and I think, um, Although I've always been, since my teen years, kind of politically on the left, I, um, I think when I was in graduate school, when I was reading accounts of the rise of modern conservatism or the right, they were, uh, the, the accounts seemed a little wooden or, or one-dimensional, and I, th- I thought that there was really much more to the story uh, that had to be told or understood about um, why and how people were attracted to conservative ideas, uh, how a mass movement was built, how the Republican Party in kind of a renovated form came to dominate uh, politics. I, I came of age in kind of the, the Reagan era. So part of it for me was uh, figuring out all, how all this happened. And part of it's probably, you know, an Oedipal struggle with my father. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, well, all things are ultimately an Oedipal <laughs> str- struggle. Yes. With your father. So why don't, can you give us that uh, thumbnail story of the uh, how did the new right arise? What were these other forces that you, you know, became convinced were crucial in accounting for the rise of the new right.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of this is um, has become fairly conventional today. But uh, you know, part of it is to to understand that uh, conservatives d- weren't just you know they they weren't just chubby fingered capitalists with you know uh, uh, holding the, the levers of of industry and and um, in finance and kind of ruling over a you know, a, a mass of people with false consciousness, there mm-hmm. were I mean, compelling ideas for a lot of people that, that drove them into this. And I think also there was, there's a larger picture of, um, of political and social and cultural changes happening in particular in the 1960s that the, the right was able to uh, make a lot of hay out of. So, um, you know, the, the, uh, the black power movement, uh, f- second wave feminism, lesbian gay rights movement, uh, the anti-war movement, associated struggles in the 1960s which were uh, challenging the basis of politics, the family, uh, political culture more broadly, opened up territory for uh, Republicans to step in and say, you know, we're actually not just the party of the rich, we're actually the party that's gonna defend your interests as uh, people who want to hold on to the traditional family. Defend your interests as white people. Defend your interests as people who are uncomfortable with a series of changes coming down the pike. Now I think partly the problem is that uh, a number of commentators after that time saw this just as a backlash and this is the language that was used Uh, To describe the rise of the right I think after the 1970s was that this was a backlash against all these radical changes that were coming down the pike Mm -hmm. And I think it's more accurate to say that um, There was no natural backlash, but there was a set of circumstances on the ground that savvy political actors were able to uh, Use to pull together a new political coalition of kind of a populist right Mm -hmm. so it was no longer um, You know as the as the old kind of Democratic Party of the New Deal was starting to fray a little bit at the edges, particularly because of the struggles I just mentioned, Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, conservative activists and thinkers were able to come in and say, well, actually, you know, we can represent your interests in this other way Mm -hmm. and and out of that build a movement.
0: So this populist right movement that you're talking about in the 60s, Mm -hmm. tell us how that sort of relates to the populist right movement that we're experiencing now.
1: You know, it, it. in some ways, there's. it's almost as if we've come full circle in a certain sense. You know, the part of what happened in the 1960s on the right was there was uh, a language of middle America that mm-hmm. starts to be introduced. The or silent majority. Or the silent majority as yeah. uh, another term. Forgotten Americans mm-hmm. is another one. And the idea is that you've got these, you know, these kind of hardworking people who pay their taxes, who don't cause trouble, uh, who you don't see uh, represented on college campuses or in Hollywood or among uh, uh, academics or bureaucrats. These people are particularly beleaguered and they need a voice. They need someone who's going to represent them because they are the ones kind of taking it on the chin every day. And so this was, first in the language of Alabama governor George Wallace when he ran for president in 64 and then again in 68 and then soon after uh, Richard Nixon who picks up on a lot of Wallace's rhetoric is to say that you know w- We represent people who are not the not the elites at the top and not the dependent poor at the bottom these people in the middle And so uh, that I was kind of the, the founding Moment for for the modern right that was quite populist when I say populist I would I mean um, an idea that it's a um, a majoritarian politics. It's supposed Mm -hmm. to represent most of the people against um, uh, a tiny group of uh, elites who are seen to stand in the way of their Mm -hmm. Mm self-fulfillment. So in a sense, this was kind of the the origin moment of the new right. I think partly what happened is that the Republican Party traveling along uh, through the 70s and 80s uh, began to abandon white working and middle class people who they claimed to defend you know, in the 60s and 70s, and um, as a result, left a lot of people feeling like, well, who, who's actually really defending our interests? Who is really, you know, you've got people who are, um, who are experiencing declining or stagnant wages over decades. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we have to remember that almost in any index you could use, white people are doing better than uh, black people and brown people, but uh, relatively, they're doing worse and worse mm-hmm. and feeling less and less represented. So the Republican Party, as it as it moves more in a financialized direction, in an anti-union direction, uh, in an anti-worker direction, leaves uh, open um, the possibility of of um, a reassertion of this idea of Middle America again. Mm-hmm. Now the party uh, in 2012, after Romney lost, decided that they were going to begin to go after uh, the Latino vote, the gay vote, uh, the women's vote, and. Um, uh, and that was going to be the trajectory of the party. That was going to be the, this was,
0: uh, this was the kind of common agreement. Right, uh, they had a, like a post-mortem after that election. Yeah, they called it the, it the autopsy.
1: Right. You know. uh, but what happened is at the base, it went exactly in the other direction. Mm-hmm. This reassertion of middle America again, a reassert- and this time with a much more kind of hard right, uh, white racist uh, affect and, and uh, specific political vision than had been in the party since really since the late 80s, -hmm. I think. Mm
0: -hmm. So, say a little bit about the sort of tensions that this, you know, you've just described a kind of split in Republicanism. Um, Say a little bit more about that particular tension between the kind of uh, financial sector Republicans, Mm -hmm. low-tax Republicans, and this middle America, this populist, I mean, obviously, the phenomenon of Trump sort of goes right into this division. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, say a little bit about the tensions and how Trump uh, benefited from them. hmm
1: Okay. Well, you know, in some ways, this tension has been there all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you see it in uh, debates between William F. Buckley and George Wallace mm-hmm. in the in the late '60s, and then and then National Review magazine and Kevin Phillips, who had been uh, Nixon's. Uh, electoral strategist and the beginnings of a, of a, of a move and uh, to, you know old line conservatism uh, kind of travels along one uh, trajectory and then uh, right wing populism kind of moves along another that uh, Ronald Reagan was able to keep these things together mm-hmm. having uh, you're really masterfully pulling together both elements mm-hmm. and and this is where we get this term Reagan Democrats right. uh, uh, who are union members uh, workers who see themselves in, in Reagan's coalition. But Reagan really begins um, an era of deregulation and of union busting that will begin to leave some of these folks behind. So you have, uh, and then Reagan also is, brings into his administration a number of people who are referred to at the time as neoconservatives. These, many of these people are former liberals who are economically conservative, but they are for uh, broader open trade agreements. For open immigration policy, for greater form uh, forms of foreign intervention, mm-hmm. uh, and this kind of breaks with some elements of the old right. And so, um, you know, there's a moment after uh, George H. W. Bush uh, uh, is president; He's, he follows Ronald Reagan. Uh, Pat Buchanan challenges him uh, in the Democratic, uh, no, sorry, in the Republican primaries, and and. Um, 1992, and he's really representing what th- what now they come to call paleoconservatives, mm-hmm. which are kind of the, the forebear of of, uh, of Trump of Trumpists today, mm-hmm. uh, around uh, a- harsh um, kind of racist anti-immigrant rhetoric, uh, anti-black rhetoric, anti-welfare rhetoric. At that point, there was a kind of a very robust um, cultural and religious uh, element to it. This mm-hmm. was the beginning of what they called the culture wars, and this mm-hmm. was Pat Buchanan's uh, famous speech at the 1988 Republican convention. Keynote speech, uh, and so, but then that, those politics kind of um, they kind of disappear after that. George uh, W. Bush wins in 2000. Uh, he is able to pull together the populists and the kind of neoconservatives for a while, but there's exhaustion with the uh, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. There is a, a kind of a ticking clock on the white majority moving from majority to plurality. Uh, uh, and there's also still uh, intensified um, financialization of the economy and a yawning gap between the very rich and everyone else that we haven't seen since the Gilded Age. Mm-hmm. And so these things kind of come together in, in, in a way that open up the possibility of kind of a renewed, let's call it Buchananism, Mm -hmm. to come to the fore. Mm -hmm. And you've got uh, people around Trump uh, in this campaign who are saying, look, we have to defend, you know, the Republican Party is talking about Latinos. They're talking about all these other groups wanting special rights. What happened to white people? What happened to white middle and working class people? Where, where, who is going to represent our interests? And it's not as if there's a clear split between racial and gender interests on the one hand and economic interests on the other. But part of uh, what the Trump campaign does is frame economic issues as racial issues and frame them as gender issues. So the decline in manufacturing has to do with kind of a loss of masculinity, uh, a loss of uh, racial status in the workplace. And so this is is how these things are pulled together in a way that uh, really opens the door for um, a, a very sharpened, right-wing politics that then brings in all these new voters into the Republican primaries. And so here comes Trump, and he beats out 16 very capable challengers with this kind of uh, insurgent base, Mm -hmm. which then begins to transform the party. And as it transforms the party, there's nothing that the conservative standard bearers can really do about it. Mm -hmm. Because it's, you know, what what Paul Ryan, every time there's some outrage, racial or gender or some other kind of outrage that that Trump is responsible for you know Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan will come out and say oh this is this is terrible. we this is not doesn't represent the best interest of the party." And then two days later they're back on board, and partly, there's nothing really they can do about it. This is where the party is now. this is where the voters are in that party. And um you know, this is that that demographic of these older white voters is shrinking all the time. Mm-hmm. so they it's in their interest too, to begin doubling down on voter suppression mm-hmm. and other things that will um, that mesh with the Trump agenda so there's ways in which the split in the Republican Party is is um, is held at bay partly because of a, a shared electoral strategy and partly because uh, mainline conservatives really can do very little to um, go against the um, what the base is calling for at this point
0: okay so you just mentioned the Trump agenda and everything you described is what Trump said he would do on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. So two weeks ago, three weeks ago, the tax bill passes. Mm-hmm. T- yesterday, Trump's administration releases their budget.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm not talking about the agenda, I'm talking about policy. Yeah, Policy, that tax bill is no different from the tax bills that George Bush would pass. Yes. And um, Trump says on the campaign trail, I'm the only one who is not going to touch Social Security. I'm the only one who's not going to touch Medicaid and Medicare of the Republicans. Paul Ryan has been wanting to dismantle the welfare welfare state for his entire career. Mm -hmm. The budget that comes out yesterday significantly cuts those programs. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So what is Trumpism now if in terms of policy, I mean in terms of economic policy Mm -hmm. let's say, Mm -hmm. it isn't all that different from mainline conservative yeah. economic policy, yeah. is that contradiction, is, that, is the gap there going to signify for these older white working class voters who are the Trump uh, the base of, for Trump's support.
1: Well, I would say that the Trump base actually is it's working class, middle class, and upper middle class. Okay. I mean, I think it's partly it's partly uh, uh, race that has pulled these folks together. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if it's a clear economic line. Although there are elements of that there. I mean, any any uh, presidential coalition is going to be an assemblage of, of different elements. I think what they I think what uh, Trump shares with conservative Republicans in terms of the the uh, the, the tax law is. It's kind of a sense of, um, you know, aggressive asset stripping, let's call it. And I think it is true that this goes against what he, you know, he promised uh, uh, the base in in many ways. But, you know, I think there's a couple things. One, um, you know, in presidential politics, you have to partly look at what... What latitude the president has to do certain things on his own Mm -hmm. through executive agency and the other one is what he has to do with Congress Mm -hmm. And so partly you have you have Trump unable to to get a lot of things done get almost anything done with Congress uh, You know in his first year, so partly they have to figure out like well. well, How are we gonna pull Mm -hmm. this together? Oh, yeah, and I think you know There are there are economic conservatives around Trump now and I think particularly since um, the departure of people like Steve Bannon, who who kept calling himself an economic nationalist in a way that would you know would, would go against some of these things, mm-hmm. there is he's much more amenable to these kind of um, oh, yeah. uh, these these kind of economic conservative policies. On the other hand, he also has this you know this massive infrastructure element to it, um, which is itself is not populist in an old kind of left way. It's you know a lot of its. Private partnerships and these kinds of things, which are going to put other things first before general public needs, but you know you'll see Republicans balking at that right now. Mm-hmm. The, so in terms of that kind of thing, I think that there is going to be a continual jockeying with um, economic conservatives in Congress. The the places where you see kind of a hard, you know, kind of white racial agenda happening is partly through the Attorney General's office, mm-hmm. uh, partly through Homeland Security, partly mm-hmm. through. Uh, other things that they can really try to achieve, and partly those two work together. Mm-hmm. If he can deliver the red meat of uh, you know of, of build the wall, uh, oppose uh, uh, immigration, uh, you know articulate a politics which is about rounding up undocumented people, this this you know is kind of the um, these are the sacrificial lambs that he can throw out that allows this other work to get done,
0: and will keep the old. Conservative guard on board with him. They'll get the things that are important for their policies, the it, tax cuts, etc. Yes, et in terms
1: of passing, in terms yes. of passing bills specifically. Yes. yes, I mean, and they are loath to really t- to push against him and be very critical because they just they're stuck. And so this is, I think that we are now seeing a trajectory of the party, it uh, overall in in an increasingly hard right direction. And it won't just be Trump. I mean, Trump, who himself is probably kind of an empty vessel, but but uh, people who share those political uh, the, the political values we associate with Trumpism are going to increasingly drive um, partisan commitments. And you, you might see, you know, this become sharpened and kind of economic populists, you, know, you know, come up against the neoliberals um, again um, and future election cycles, kind of the way you've seen it in the, the Democratic Party as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the Democratic Party. So we talked about right-wing populism. I think it's fair to say that part of the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, which was also quite a phenomenon, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the political establishment dis- was very dismissive of him. Yeah. there is a kind of left-wing populist component to that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So, what's your sense of the role of left-wing poli- populism in American politics? Do you think that that's also a force that's going to become increasingly important? Um, I mean, d- regard. I mean, there is obviously the question of will the Democratic Party establishment come to terms with that movement, mm-hmm. um, but is that a significant political movement in the next 10 years or 15 years in your view?
1: I think uh, it depends on a lot of factors, but you know, part of, the, um, part of the issue with left-wing populism, and partly the question we have to ask is why, why did populist politics capture the imagination of right-wing voters as opposed to left-wing voters across this uh, across this time period of the last half century and uh, when, when the populist movement of the 19th century was clearly a left-wing movement mm-hmm. but you know if you look you dig down a little bit into populism there are elements of it uh, you know what, what people historians call producerism the mm-hmm. idea that at the center of society is, uh, is, is the virtuous producer who's neither rich nor poor as a small property owner what, what Tocqueville called the, the anxious men of small property uh, who are, can push an agenda which can either go against economic elites or state elites, but uh, the, the problem with it is, is how you imagine who is the American majority. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you, you know, in, in the, the Democrats have to, I think Sanders, um, the Sanders movement was quite extraordinary and no one expected it and mm-hmm. it, was, it was gigantic mm-hmm. and, it, and, it, and it has fundamentally altered the party in certain ways. But you know he was—he showed himself early on to be tone deaf to questions of, um, of questions of race, for instance. Mm-hmm. And you know he he worked hard on that and tried to figure that out and, uh, in, in in a number of ways. Uh, but you have—but there was you know this idea of just bring back manufacturing or speaking just in, an, in a language of of um, of uh, industrial um, you know rene- you know renewal. Uh, you know, it's not exactly the, the kind of politics that's going to bring in um, you know broad n- broad numbers of people who are. Really disenfranchised in almost permanent ways from the system, I and mean, we have entire communities that are, you know, have, have suffered state abandonment mm-hmm. as well as capital abandonment for mm-hmm. generations now. I think just a promise of bring back manufacturing is not a way to to build a broad coalition on the left that can really overcome some of these problems. And then at the heart of it, the Democratic Party is split between really people committed to neoliberalism, when I say that, really committed to. Uh, trade agreements, to uh, the banking system, uh, to things that, that skew towards the very top, and they have a lot of power in the party, which is of course the Sandersite criticism all along, mm-hmm. uh, which they're quite right, and they're not necessarily going anywhere. This mm-hmm. was the Obama wing of the party. Mm-hmm. It was the Clinton wing of the mm-hmm. party. It's kind of the ghost of the Democratic Leadership Council, which mm-hmm. is which is still there. So it would require something. I think. I think ultimately. To see a kind of left populism emerge that has any relationship with the Democratic Party, it will probably have to come continually come from below and outside the party. The places that that pushed open the doors that allowed Sandersism to happen, I think, were the Occupy Movement, Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. uh, associated social movements and smaller insur- insurrections around the US that really uh, that put pressure from the outside and pressed from below and, and made that happen. Sanders of course himself wasn't even a member of the Democratic Party until, right. until the uh, campaign. So I think that you know, part of this depends not just on partisan politics
0: but where else we see political action uh, in society. So do you have a prediction about the next uh, presidential election?
1: The thing is I'm, I'm always wrong, Yeah, and so um, I should probably you know, predict what I think, what I hope will not happen, <laughs> and then it will <laughs> Um
0: So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, mass media and the presidency. So since Roosevelt, US presidents have used the mass media to connect directly with the American people. Obama's the first president to use Twitter, Trump is the, the one who has Mastered or commands Twitter. Mm-hmm. Say a little bit about your sense of the role of, in particular, these new media platforms in American politics.
1: Now. Mm-hmm. I think that they are they're linked to uh, forms of kind of modern populism. I think in distinct ways. You know w- when. It's, Nixon is the first president to decide to kind of go over the heads of the press and straight to the American people. Mm-hmm. His famous silent majority speech was exactly right. about that.
0: And the checker uh, speech is another one,
1: right? Is another one, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, we had speechwriters like William Sapphire who, who talked about nattering nabobs of negativism and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. And, and really uh, um, speaking directly to the people in a way that, uh, that made the press the enemy, that demonized other opponents of, of the presidency. And in a way, that, that kind of um, expansion of executive power, which the anti-federalists were anxious about at the very beginning, uh, gets taken up um, uh, with George W. Bush. You know, their, their extraordinary arrogance towards the press and uh, kind of brutality towards the press and kicking people out of the White House press corps who gave them negative, you know, uh, press and that kind of thing, made it so that it really, we've had a slow erosion over time, which has opened up the possibility of a president who can use social media to go straight to the public uh, in these kinds of uh, ways, which are, um, they're quite extraordinary, I think. And, um, but I think this is largely what, in this changed landscape, this is what it's going to look like. We've seen kind of the erosion of the traditional press, which partly has to do with, you know, um, changes in media conglomeration uh, changes uh, in how media is regulated. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of things that have kind of destroyed uh, mainstream institutions of, of media, as well as kind of money chasing of, from major media organizations. Yeah, infotainment. Yes, yeah, yeah, that have made this possible, I think. And so now, w- with social media and with the president who knows, who has such um, an exquisite sense of this. You know, remember, he was on uh, The Apprentice uh, for, you know, a decade. Focus grouping after each episode, finding out exactly what worked best and you know what worked least well, and it's, it's a little bit like Reagan in that way. You know, people you know saw Reagan as a as a fool, but but you know he, his his ability to connect with publics was uh, was was quite intuitive, and I think there's something similar with Trump. He um, you know he ends up sustaining <laughs> some these days. Actually, his numbers are not so bad. I think partly he knows how to use um, those kinds of direct forms to. Um, to achieve what he wants to achieve.
0: Hmm. So you're, you're, we've had a very interesting uh, discussion about the work that you do as a scholar and a researcher. But you're also a teacher. So tell me about a class or two that you teach.
1: What do I teach? I teach, uh, I teach, a, um, I teach a general uh, intro to US government and politics, which I, I love. It's a, it's a big class of 150 students. And we go through all the, the general institutions of governance in the US, and partly from a historical perspective. And you know that's you get a lot of uh, uh, first-year students in these classes, and I love that class because it's really what I t- really try to do is just draw them into politics and bring them into the cult of politics. So, <laughs> cult. You know, you I, I, I teach them that, or try to, or try to demonstrate to them that everything they may not, as someone said, they may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in them. them. And so, uh, so that's what I try to use that course to really um, make it palpable to them why politics actually matters in in, in real ways in their life. and that it can be interesting. And a passion and torturous and everything else you know. I teach a course in. Uh, US. racial politics, which kind of is partly historical from the kind of the mid 20th century to the present, um, partly institutional, partly structural, partly through social movements. Um, I teach American political thought where we kind of go back through, partly through the greatest hits of. of US political thinkers, but um, where we see, recurring themes. These days, the kind of uh, racial nationalists of the early 20th century, like Madison Grant, are kind of seen to be back in vogue on that, <laughs> and, and U.S. politics. So there's some kind of uh, interest and fun and realizing some of the roots of questions of gender and race and sexuality and hierarchy and questions of democracy and freedom, which come up in there, which is a lot of fun.
0: So we've got a minute left. Last question. Um, what are you working on now?
1: I uh, am, one of the things I'm working on is kind of a, a history of right-wing populism which we've kind of been talking about. Um, I'm also doing a um, a short co-authored book on uh, the alt-right in the streets
0: over the last year, and so I've been hitting different venues. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Joe, for taking the time to speak with us, and good luck with that research. Thanks.
1: Thanks for having me, Paul.
0: I've been speaking with Joseph Lowndes, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.